When a belief defines you, what does it take to change your mind? What does it take to question basic assumptions, overcome your deepest biases, and realize you were wrong? How does it feel to lose friends, to be called a traitor, a faker, a sellout? We talk with people who went from certainty to existential crisis and came out of it with a different perspective on reality. This is Shift. But uh, such so many people here, I'd like to also extend a, a, an apology to the King family. I said a lot of terrible things about Dr. Martin Luther King. I had, I had no idea what I was talking about, but I learned it, learned from, from other people, but there's no excuse I did it anyway. And uh, I extend my apology to everyone. The man you just heard is Scott Shepard. He's apologizing publicly to members of Martin Luther King's family on Martin Luther King Day. But in a sense, he's also apologizing to you, to me, to anyone who would be appalled by the life that he once lived. In that life, he was a grand wizard in the Ku Klux Klan. It seems impossible to go from wearing a hood to asking for forgiveness from King's granddaughter in public. But it isn't impossible. It happened. A man turned into the ideological opposite of his previous self. Scott Shepard shed an identity that was designed to be unshakable. The American white people are searching and are reaching out for a movement. And the Ku Klux Klan is that movement. It's one thing to learn facts. If you find out they're wrong, you change your mind. But it's another thing to learn a worldview like that, one that's hammered into your soul and your bones with chants and repetition, with rituals and myths about pure origins and racial destiny. That's what Scott learned. He spent his formative years in the Klan, coming of age during his journey up through the ranks. It's a journey that started when he wasn't even a teen, with a bike and a phone book. At that early age, I was in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, visiting my sister, and going through the phone book, and you know, at that time, I think it was the early 70s, there, right there in the phone book was Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. There was always, you know, the you know the reports on TV with the Klan was, at, you know, having their rallies and 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 cross lightings and like I said, those things fascinated me. Led by Imperial Wizard Bill Wilkinson, Navy Ku Klux Klan members marched around a cross they had constructed, wrapped in burlap, and then doused with diesel fuel about a half mile deep in the woods. On Wilkinson's orders, the Klansmen lit the cross. And I got the address, and it just happened to be down the road from where my sister lived. And I rode, you know, back and forth past the place. Of course, no one was ever there. Then I did some more reading and found out that the man lived on Eden Church Road, and I went to his house. That was Bill Wilkerson, who was in Denham Springs, Louisiana just right outside a few miles from Baton Rouge, and he was the imperial wizard of that Klan organization. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my humble duty tonight to introduce you to the grand and imperial wizard of the invisible knights of the Ku Klux Klan, Mr. Bill Wilkinson. 
he you know eventually became a like a grandfather figure to me but he had that very rabid racist side to him oh imperial wizard can you tell me and us 100 years after you set the you your predecessors set the south aflame with the cross burnings lynchings and uh, other uh, events you should be bothering this country still why should the Klan still be bothering this country? To someone on the outside, it seems like a crazy question. There's no answer that could possibly make sense. But for a young boy like Scott, the answer didn't need to make sense. It needed to provide a sense of belonging and significance. Why should the Klan still be bothering people? Bill Wilkinson's initial answer to him, the Klan's initial answer to any newcomer, had a straightforward bottom line. We're around because our mission provides meaning to people like you. Because believing in us will make you feel good and important. Because if you believe, you'll belong to something special, and belonging is a powerful feeling. So Wilkinson welcomed the young boy with open arms and an empowering message, and the conversation went well. And then after talking with him, I attended a an official rally in Tupelo, Mississippi, and met some of the other members and leaders, and that's basically where, where you know, they put the arm around my shoulders and drew me in. I have to admit, going into my interview with Scott, I thought I already knew some of the key parts of his story. The set of circumstances that would lead someone like him to enter the KKK, well, I thought they were fairly predictable. He probably had racist parents, which lead to racist kids that grow up to be racist adults. They have kids. The cycle continues. That's how you become vulnerable to Klan rhetoric. I thought that to fall for the Klan, you sort of had to believe it already. But that turned out to be further from the truth than I ever could have imagined. I first met Scott Shepard when I was a kid. Uh, my grandmother, at some point in time, raised me while my dad was going to school, and he would, he would uh, come home at night, you know. And during the day, she would be off taking care of Scott and his siblings. That's the voice of Ricardo Hawkins Sr., Scott's close childhood friend and the grandson of Rebecca Hawkins, a woman who played a massive role in Scott's upbringing and that of his mother. I'd have to say I came into her life, really, because she was just all, was always there. Uh, when they brought my mother in on a pillow, because they adopted her, when they brought her in, Becky was there when they brought her in on a pillow. And sometimes I would end up over their house across the track, or he would come over, or Miss Morris would come over and visit, and then we would go out and play in the backyard. And that went on for years. I wasn't raised by, you know, racist parents, you know, they, uh, my mother didn't teach me racism, nor did my father, uh, and, and, you know, ironically, I was raised by a black lady. When he really opened his eyes, you know, a new baby does, I was the first thing he saw. I would go by every morning to get him up bathe him and get him dressed and get his bottle. She was more of a second mom than she was, you know, a, I, I, I've never called her a nanny. I've always called her Ma Becky or something like that. I was employed as a caretaker housekeeper for his grandmother. 
and they were owners of the theaters here in Indianola. It's hard to communicate how blown away I was when I first heard Scott's story. A big part of me just didn't want to believe it. It was too scary. Like everyone's just wandering around in the world open to believing any kind of poison. I mean, how could a kid whose parents weren't racist and who was partially raised by a black woman whose love and care for him was there to serve as the most powerful antidote to any racist stereotypes, a second mother? How could a boy like that end up in the Klan? I started to think that if he could, then anyone could. There's only one theater in the city. And most of the times, black Americans could not sit downstairs. They kept it separate. It was only a small section in the top layer of the theater, the two-story, that blacks could, could really sit in. And the rest of the whole bottom of the theater was for whites only, you know. Imagine me being a kid and I... My cousin Ronnie and I could go and get in and sit at the bottom with whites only because Scott's mom, Paula, would let me go in because she knew my family and my grandmother worked, you know, for the family and raised our kids. We can't be naive about racism. If your parents aren't actively racist, you don't just avoid being raised with racist ideas. It's not just your parents raising you. It's what surrounds you the institutions, the community, your extended family. So when the law of the land mandates segregation at movie theaters and your local segregated theater is owned by your family, then you really are being raised as a racist, no matter what your parents are like. Publicly and openly, you know, the Klan didn't preach, I mean, preach uh, violence. I mean, they, they looked at itself as a Christian organization and, you know, they just kind of their image on the outside was distorted and you fell for that but bill wilson was very persuasive with his you know with his tactics of uh, of promoting the clan to begin with i, I believe a, a slight rebuttal is in order for your opening statements or the opening statements that was made about the clan we are not anti-catholic we are not anti-semitic uh, it says on a uh, sheet that you people hand out to the young and the youths of our high school, it says, uh, if you want to join the Klan, quote, I swear that I am of white, non-Jewish heritage. Are you fed up with special privileges given to blacks? That's a quotation from your own literature. Absolutely. We are well, a Christian... What do, you mean you're not, what do you mean you're not anti-Semitic? We are a Christian organization. Uh, we also don't allow Buddhists or Muslims Wilkinson was a smooth-talking man, a personable man, and he knew how to win over his targets. Those leaflets that Phil Donahue was referring to in the interview, they contain the core of the Klan's recruitment strategy, its myth-making, the promise of meaning and belonging for people who felt lost in the world. It's a strategy that won Scott over, and one that he later mastered and understood all too well, since he ended up head recruiter in the Klan after a swift ascent through the ranks. Of course, they really, really build you up and, and, and build your ego up. And from the time that I joined, from that moment on, I felt, you know, I had an instant sense of importance. And that's, you know, of course, then they, that's when they would introduce you, like I said, the cross lighting. And then in these classes, they, they say that the cross lighting, 
quote, lighting is a, a uh, symbol of, of, of the light of Jesus Christ and the light he shines on us. And, and when they say us, they're talking about the Klan and white supremacists. But uh, yes, I, felt, you know, I went to my first cross lighting. There's no more truly representative symbol of the white race the fiery cross. It is our symbol. I was really amazed, you know, by it because you had all these robed clansmen and, you know, they they really taken an interest in me because I was a new member. Let's start acting like white people, behaving like white people, talking like white people. Enough nigger culture. I really felt, felt overwhelmed and, and really excited and I guess I guess that's what was one of the things that got me more into a gung-ho mindset to, uh, you know, pursue this a lot further. The entire time, you know, I guess there was always, and I describe, you know, describe it as a little bitty voice in the back of my mind that, you know, kind of pretty much always asked me, you know, do you really believe the things you're doing or do you know what you're doing is wrong? Do you believe, really believe this? But the, I was so eat up with anger and, and, and self-hate and I didn't like myself. I didn't like anyone. So, I, you know, I just kind of ignored that and brushed it off. But sure, you know, I did. It was, a, it was a common, common thing of thinking of Becky. I'd like to believe that there's certain bonds, relationships between people, like the love between me and my parents that couldn't ever be overcome. It's a kind of love that grows out of shared experiences of being cared for like Scott was by Ma Becky. And those bonds do last. Scott was able to recover them even after decades. But as powerful as they are, there are also ways to repress them, layering one identity over a previous one, a mask so powerful that you forget your face is underneath it. It's kind of like the same system that's used on the streets today with street gangs. And uh, actually, it's the identical, really. You know, a lot of these kids on the, in these big cities, and not just big cities now, it's moved into small towns. But, you know, you get, most of these kids that are in these gangs, you know, come from troubled homes. And then the leaders of these, you know, street gangs uh, latch on to them and give them a sense of, you know, family importance and, uh, you know, a feeling of... Uh, you know, legitimacy. So that's basically the same thing that these Klan groups do, do. and uh, of course, Bill Wilkerson also. And then, of course, I was molded into the recruitment area of the organizations, and uh, I used the same tactics that was used on myself. Despite having Ma Becky, Scott's life was very unstable, which made him vulnerable to the promise of meaning held out by the Klan. He had no real home, no real sense of belonging to society, a part of what made him so good at his job in the Klan is that he could read recruits for the same kinds of emotional problems that he had, the need for authoritative legitimacy and support that once made him a perfect target. Scott insists on taking responsibility for his actions. That's a big part of what makes his apology so powerful. But as someone on the inside, he's well aware that people who end up in the KKK are subject to very powerful forces, wielded by people who have perfected the art of attracting the young and the vulnerable. Just the entire process is, in pro is a process of manipulation. And uh, that was definitely, a, you know, a way of getting these people into the movement, manipulating them and, and, and kind of 
I guess you would call it, uh, well, taking advantage of their situation, just like, you know, that that I was in at that time. My dad uh, ended up, you know, being an alcoholic and was a, you know, pretty much a, a very violent alcoholic. You know, there was a lot of times as a young kid, even before, you know, younger than 10 years old, you know, the, the, the commotion that went on, the fussing, the fighting, and the violence and stuff, I remember that well. And, you know, of course, I remember just laying in my bed and hearing it and stuff and just, you know, wanting it to go away. I was a shy kid. I was scared. And, you know, I, of course, I acted out, you know, in ways, uh, you know, negative ways. And, and I'm sure it was you know, it had to do with a lot of the way, way I was raised and things I saw with my dad. It was, uh, I mean, I saw some really horrific things. I mean, just not myself, but my older brother and young, older sister saw them also. What we saw would have been probably equal to what a uh, soldier sees in, in war and ends up with PTSD. And I'm sure, that I, you know, myself and the siblings ended up with PTSD. As I listened to Scott describe his experiences, I started to realize that I was drastically underestimating the power of affirmation. What you're working for, what you're being affirmed for, that isn't really important when you've never received affirmation. What really matters is the feeling that you're doing your work well, hearing that affirmation from your authorities. That's where the meaning comes from. That's what's important. And that's what the KKK gave Scott when nobody else could. I climbed the ladder pretty fast because once I got in, you know, like I say, I felt the instant feeling of importance. And with that instant feeling of importance, that gave me the, you know, the motivation to, try, you know, do my best to be the best that was. And and that's what I did. And, and they saw that. And, and that was probably pretty much way of their one of their tactics, you know, giving me a boost and bringing me up the ladder, you know, ladder, you know, at a, at a quick pace so that I would work harder. The reward for his hard work was privileged access to the highest levels of the KKK, something which would eventually lead him to run for office. At the same time, I was a candidate for governor of Tennessee, is running openly as a nation, white nationalist. When Scott says openly, he means it. As a white nationalist candidate, he was committed fully to his identity in the public sphere, appearing on national television to defend it. Are these men a real threat? Could they someday win seats in Congress? Well, I think it's possible for white supremacists and neo-Nazi candidates to be successful in the electoral arena. Mr. Shepard and Mr. Jones, Mr. Levitas thinks you're dangerous. Do you see yourself that way? Absolutely not. I think... Uh... Uh, Center for Democratic Renewal is an organization that's, uh, it feeds the American public full of propaganda. Scott may have been confident publicly, but on the inside, things were slowly starting to change. A big part of it was realizing that he was seen as a threat by the government and the public, as a monster. And the fact that violence was being committed in the name of his cause started to make that perspective difficult to ignore. Something about me hit the newspaper. Well, it was a the University of Mississippi, they had a fire down there that burnt a black uh, fraternity house. And I got subpoenaed by the federal grand jury on that and was questioned. This made the news and, you know, TV and newspapers. And 
as a public and likely suspect in an arson attack on Ole Miss's first black fraternity house, Scott felt mounting pressure to reach out to Ma Becky. Finally, he picked up the phone. It was this call that would eventually lead to Ricardo Hawkins finding out what had become of his childhood friend. Ironically, this is how I found out, Alan. He called my grandmother. He called my grandmother and said, um, it's just to check on her, you know, Bessie, how are you doing? And he asked about the family, he asked about me, and, and my grandmother told him, well, you know, he's in Memphis now. He graduated from Ole Miss and he's working in Memphis. And, he, and then Scott said, well, I live in Memphis too. And ironically, Alan, we live on the same street. Ricardo had attended Ole Miss, and now Scott was suspected of burning down a frat house there. He and Scott were living in two utterly different worlds while living on the very same street. And during that time, he was probably uh, highly ranked uh, in the Klan, uh, like with working with David Duke. And that was back in the time I think David Duke was talking about running for president. Duke did, in fact, run for president and subsequently for the Louisiana State Legislature, which he infamously won. David Duke has been repudiated by his party, vilified by his opponents, exposed as a racist in this TV commercial. My victory. The move caused an uproar that reached the White House, prompting George H.W. Bush to weigh in. And this man, uh, his record is, is one of racism and bigotry, and, and I'm sorry, uh, I just uh, felt I had to speak out. With the president explicitly calling out his associate and former boss, with the fire at Ole Miss, and with Scott becoming a suspect in yet another crime, this time a mail bombing campaign, the attention started to severely affect his family life. I went into the school where my twins were, and the teachers, I mean, everybody just looking at me, looking at me. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, this is really bad. I'm here, you know, checking on my kids and stuff. And I could feel these people looking at me and, you know, and, and them thinking, thinking that I, you know, committed some kind of horrific crime, like, you know, burning down a black paternity house at Ole Miss or the mail bomb situation because it hit the news also. There was a uh, series of mail bombs that were being sent off to Alabama and Georgia, and I think they killed a, a federal judge, uh, and some lawyers, and it was made out to look like it was a white supremacist attack. And so the FBI was watching me, actually came and questioned me, uh, you know, at my job about it. And of course, that, that turned out not to be, you know, very much of a uh, calm uh, conversation because I just didn't coordinate with him, you know, cooperate with him in any way. Scott's enthusiastic support for the KKK went from affecting his family life to making him a marked man in the eyes of the law with serious consequences. So the FBI was watching me and I was at a restaurant one night and I was having dinner and had a few drinks and when I left that restaurant, I got pulled over by the police about a mile down the road. And not only, and again, I would say it just wasn't one or two uh, blue lights. It was an ocean, sea of blue lights. So they had a lot of people there. And I, I had a illegal weapon underneath the front seat of my car. 
Uh, also, uh, while I had been drinking and failed the sobriety test, and I, I had a, I had a, I had a uh, small amount of marijuana also that they caught me with, and so they arrested me, and this threw me into the court system. And when I got into the court system, uh, there I was, uh, you know, uh, white supremacists going through the court, and I said, you know, I'm going to get fried. It was at this point that extraordinary circumstances conspired to push Scott in a different direction. It's as if the universe wanted him to change. He was assigned a public defender by the name of Handel Durham, and suddenly he was confronted with a massive challenge to his whole belief system right there in the flesh, because there was something important about Handel Durham. You know, I, 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 I tried to find my file. God, it, this had to have been over 20, 25 years ago. Had to have been. I didn't know anything about, you know, Scott's background or nothing, anything. I was what they would call the uh, 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 contempt attorney. Of course, I was faced with, you know, a black lawyer, and I just thought to myself, well, you know, once he finds out my past and, and my life and the things I've done, you know, he's not going to defend me you know, at all or, or not put much effort into it, and he did. He's a client. We interviewed, I interviewed him, and uh, 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 about his case, we got to know each other. I was between Scott and jail, if I, if I recall. He, he went above and beyond what any other lawyer that I may have used in the past has ever done, and I mean, he was genuine and really caring and and, and, and probably came close to different, you know, different times of getting itself in trouble to, you know, uh, defended me. And some, it got on the news somehow. And I would have individuals that I, that, that, that I knew would, uh, and that I'd known would ask, how can you, rep- do you know what he thinks about us and about you people? <laughs> and I just, I, and, and she was a friend. And I just said, well, that was not, that's not part of the deal. My goal is to make certain that I represent my client to the best of my ability. It's hard to imagine Handel Durham, a black lawyer, fighting for a white supremacist as hard as he could. It was Durham's idea to substitute jail time for time in rehab something which would not only play a crucial role in Scott's shift, but also probably saved his life. A lot of the people in the treatment center saw the news. They knew I was coming to, you know, Cumberland Heights. Well, I entered that drug treatment center in Nashville, and, you know, I went in one person and came out another. There was people of all color, all races, uh, people of all sexual preferences, just, you know, just a whole gamut of, of people. And, you know, here I was really sitting down talking to these people and getting to know them. And these are the same people that I had been speaking out against and, and condemning and, you know, just, you know, preaching hatred towards. But yet these same people were sitting there listening to me and, and, and extending their hand and heart and love to me. And, of course, when I first arrived there, the director of the uh, center, you know, pulled me into his office and said, you know, we've got, I mean, it was like a cabin setting. You know, you shared a cabin with, you know, like maybe eight, 
nine, ten, ten more people. And he said, you know, we've got blacks in here and other people of different races and religions. I said, I sure do. I said, but all I want to do is get in and get my paperwork and get out. I don't care and go on with my racist life. So, uh, yeah, that, you know, that was one of the big parts that played as uh, far as me being able to, you know, get, get to my senses and get out. But, it, I mean, it didn't happen overnight. It, you know, it took, it took a while for me to grasp exactly what went on in that treatment center. One of the black guys that was in there, was he's also in my cabin. And I remember sitting in the cabin, and he walked up to me uh, and stood in front of me. He was dressed in a white shirt, white belt, white pants, white socks, and white shoes. And he looked at me right now, and he says, I want to join the Ku Klux, you know, Ku Klux Klan. And, of course, at that moment, you know, the way he said it, he was trying to mock the southern accent, you know, of course, that I have and trying to do that. It was, <laughs> it was really a, a funny, funny situation, and we all broke out started laughing. Here he was, he pulled a joke on me, and then we all laughed about it. The ice was broken, the tension was broken, and, and we started up a lot of conversations together. It's hard enough to change your identity. It takes a miracle of people and circumstances that all come together just right. But even if you have changed your mind, it's not so easy to change your life, especially if your life involves the KKK. There's only three options. There's three options, you know, really to get out of, the, or the, of that organization. There's one is you come to your senses and you have a change of heart and realize that you're doing wrong or, or what, what you're doing you really don't believe. And you take that, you know, they take that step of just walking away. That doesn't happen a whole lot, and that and that can get you killed or or injured, injured. And then you can second, you can end up in jail. If you don't end up in jail, the th you can move to the third option. The third option is you're dead. You get killed. You die. I was going to turn in a notice, and I said no. <laughs> That's not a good thing because if I did that, you know, I might not see the next day or, or be able to take the next step of, of my exit. So, of course, I attended a meeting there in Alabama, and I made sure that, you know, that that was going to be my last meeting. And when I left that last meeting, I came back home to Tennessee, but I went into, you know, went into seclusion, separated myself from everyone, didn't. I mean, really didn't have an identity or try to rebuild my life or, or, or in any way, form, or fashion. Abandoning the KKK meant Scott was leaving behind a group of people who gave him meaning and a sense of belonging, in a way, his surrogate family. But that didn't mean things would go back to normal. Joining them in the first place had caused severe damage to relationships with his original family, alienating his blood relatives and Ma Becky, too. I, I didn't voluntarily separate myself from my, my own daughter you know our relationship was damaged because of my you know my associations with that and my younger sister uh, you know the same thing so I you know I didn't have any any contact with either one of them for for years I know my younger sister was 10 years but I did have an older sister that was in Baton Rouge Louisiana and who had breast cancer so I went down to take care of my sister there Scott was, 
in the very same house he set off from on his bike all those years ago to meet Bill Wilkinson and learn about the KKK. Once a troubled and curious young boy, he was now a troubled man, struggling to come to terms with a chain of events that had led him from a fateful meeting with white supremacists to a life that he desperately wanted to leave. And when I was down, uh, you know, when I was there, Hurricane Katrina hit. Yeah, hey, Miles, uh, this may be the easy side of the storm, but it does not feel very easy uh, right here on the banks of the Mississippi River. The damage uh, here along the Gulf Coast is catastrophic. There's a frantic effort underway tonight to find survivors. There are an uncounted number of the dead tonight. And when Hurricane Katrina hit, you know, being a funeral director and then bomber, uh, I went in as a volunteer with, you know, some of the federal agencies and, and other groups that were down there. And again, I was thrown into a situation of, I was working with people of all color, religions, uh, I mean, just total different people from all over the country. And, and I developed really a, a great relationship with all these people because we had to work in a very close and emotional uh you know, situation, you know, with all the deaths out of New Orleans. But, uh, of course, with my sister, she we went through that together. And, of course, her, her cancer progressed. And she asked me, I mean, well, it was her last time in the hospital on her deathbed. She asked me, she said, we had long, you know, a lot of uh, time to talk. And she said, do you regret anything that you've done or or any of, of the actions that you've done in your past, and I said, I do. I, you know, I regret, I regret it, I regret it all. And she looked me right in the eye and said, well, you know, you can take what you've done and turn it into a positive thing and, and help people. So, I, you know, and then she died uh, two or three days later. After that, uh, I continued to work uh, the hurricane uh, relief and was there probably about a year and like I said became really close to a lot of these people it came, it came to a point that I ended up you know ended up my, well I, yeah I ended up sick myself and I ended up uh, somewhere around 2007 2008 I ended up having to have you know three-fourths of my stomach removed and then six months later after that surgery I had complications and nearly died and was in the hospital for about six or eight weeks and I had a lot of time to think I thought about my sister a lot uh, you know and I I thought about the people I worked with in Baton Rouge and of course Becky and her family were always uh, a, a, a thought that, that you know worked <laughs> worked on me and I, that's when I made my decision to come out of seclusion really and open up you know about my life and the, the response I got was really overwhelming and very positive. Scott's opening up about his life culminated in what we heard at the beginning of this episode. Scott, on stage, apologizing to Martin Luther King's daughter. So what's it like for you sitting next to this man who was once a part of an organization that, that meant harm for your father in particular? The word that, that describes it for me is redeeming. Um, one of the principles of nonviolence is unearned suffering is redemptive. What my father sacrificed his life for is what brought this possibility into being. Um, 
I was dangerously close like my father because of an experience he had early on as a teenager. He won this oratorical um, contest um, down in Dublin, Georgia when he was 15 years of age. And on his way back, they had to stop through some town. And because the uh, bus was crowded, he had to give up his seat to a, a white person. And that angered him. And it caused him to be very close to hating all white people. Imagine if Dr. King had let that lie resident in his heart. But because he continued to be surrounded by people who unconditionally loved him and his family and the community that he grew up in, that hate could not blossom. I went to Becky's house and that she had, you know, has lived in all her life. And I hadn't seen her, hadn't seen her in years. And I opened, I mean, I, yeah, I opened the screen door and knocked on the, the wooden door. And she opened the door and just the way she is with her actions and her excitement, she squeals and screams and my baby, you know, just, that's just how she, you know, how she reacted towards seeing me. and. She opened her arms and, and, and hugged my neck. You know, we reunited with her and her family, and we just attended Becky's 103rd birthday back in October. That, you know, that, that really meant a lot to me. She, not only did she open her arms and her heart, and she, you know, she told me, she said, I always knew that someday you would come back, you know, come back home. And she was right, I did. Listening to Scott tell me about this fairy tale happy ending, I'm filled with conflicted emotions. There's the cynical part of me that's thinking about the enormity of everything it took to get there. All the things that had to happen, the people that helped Scott see the light, the incredible luck that led to his encountering open hearts when they easily could have been closed. I wonder how, as a professor, I would treat a student in the KKK. Would I love that student? Treat them humanely? Open up a path to redemption like the one Scott walked? Or would I turn away in disgust? If I'm honest with myself, I don't know the answer, even if I wish I did. But at the same time, looking at all of it, there's a simple answer staring back at me. A moral to the story that's been told so many times, it becomes a cliche. Love overcomes hate. This is MLK's message, Christ's message, Gandhi's message, the message of religious prophets and saints. But it's also Scott and Ma Becky's message. They show me it's true, it's real. And when I let that truth wash over me, I become a different person. The kind of professor who would love a student like Scott. The kind of person who would treat him the way that Ma Becky did. And maybe that's the best we can do. I think the love that my grandmother instilled in both of us, I think it's what got him over and, and then finally turned him. My dad and my grandmother and I was having this conversation. Would Scott do something to you if his clan members saw a black person, that black person had to be you or your dad? And I was like, you know, I don't know. You know, what was I do? Because he's so high up in that, he would, you know, would he kill me? Would he hang me? What, what, what would he do, you know? 
because a lot of that was going on back in that time. That was a question that always came up, but I said to my grandmother, you know, you raised us with love, and I hope at the end of the day, love would, would shine through. And I think that's it. That's, that's what happened. 